Welcome to a freezing cold KZN. This is episode number 60 out of the Bird Enough podcast. My name is Adam and I'm your host on the podcast where you discover birds and the people that pursue them. We just want to start off this episode and say a big thank you to all the messages of support that have come through. This last week has been a difficult week, but it's great to be back and to get back into the swing of things with this week's episode. This week's guest joins us all the way from Vermont in the USA. Bridget Butler, also known as the Bird Diva, discusses an approach to birding that encourages deeper observation, deeper listening, and ultimately a deeper connection. This interview takes us on a fascinating journey as we look at things such as how the left and the right brain can work together to help with bird identification, how to break down birdsong using the Five Voices Simple Sounds Framework, and how the sit, spot, practice anchors our experiences and observations of birds to a particular place over time. As always, The Birding Life is proud to be associated with Swarovski Optic, one of the world's leading producers of binoculars, monoculars and spotting scopes, as well as the Bird Lasser bird logging app Spot, Plot, Play a Part. Download and install the app to play your part in social conservation. If you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe and leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts to help others to find the show. Please also tell others you know about the show. If you would like to contribute to help us cover the costs associated with hosting the show, you can click on the link in the comment section of this episode and buy us a coffee or even two. So without further ado, let's dig into this week's episode with Bridget Butler. I went through your website and you describe yourself as someone who plays matchmaker for the wildscape and the wonderful people who, who call Vermont their home. So to start with, for the people that are listening to this have no idea who you are, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yeah, so um, let's see. I'm Bridget Butler. I am located in the like upper northeastern corner of the United States, right near the Canadian border in a tiny state called Vermont. Um, I'm a mom with three kids, and I started my own business called Bird Diva Consulting, that does outreach and other services for people who are interested in birds. I grew up playing hard outdoors every day. And I think that's where my love and my connection for nature comes from. And so it's always been something that has been a part of my life. I got a degree in marine biology and like traveled up and down the East Coast studying all kinds of things. I love the snow. So I, I ended up back in Vermont and um, kind of found my way to the Audubon Society, which is a bird conservation organization that's very big here in the United States. And was there a bird that was a trigger bird for you? Yeah, you know, for the most part, when I first started working for Audubon, I wasn't really into birds. I was into the marine science part of things. But when I finally moved to Vermont and started working for Audubon Vermont here, and this is such a vivid, vivid memory, is the indigo bunting. So it's, it's like um, a spa sparrow or finch, and it's bright indigo colored blue, especially when the light hits it right. And I was doing um, a birdathon for Audubon Vermont, which is like a 24-hour period of birding to raise money for the organization. And we used to sleep out at the nature center in order to like wake up at dawn and make the most of the day. And it was dawn when I heard this very loud paired song coming from outside the tent. And at this point in time, I wasn't like a really super good birder. So I was really relying on all my coworkers to kind of help pull me along um, through this birdathon. 
And I unzip my tent and there was a beautiful apple tree right out in front of my tent and it was in full bloom. So these gorgeous white and pink blossoms with this bright blue bird sitting at the top, just singing his heart out. And that was my first bird of the day. And that bird just, man, just completely grabbed my attention. And I I had to know more. And I think that indigo bunting was that, that spark for me. Absolutely fantastic. So a couple, uh, about a month or so ago, I stumbled across your interview with Nate Swick on the ABA podcast. And since I heard about your approach to birding, I've been absolutely fascinated to learn more. I must say, I was both fascinated to learn more, but I was also really challenged by the things that you spoke about. So for those who have never heard about this, um, what slow birding is, can you give us a short introduction? Yeah, So slow birding was a word that I put to the type of birding that I finally allowed myself to be comfortable with. And it's really just an alternative approach to birding that kind of sheds the drive to list or to compete with other birders or to, I don't know, gatekeep knowledge. These were some of the things that I ran into when I first started birding and So the more I thought about how I wanted to bird, the more I noticed that it really was about slowing down and kind of being in that moment rather than always trying to move on and get the next bird. And over about a course of of 10 years, like when I really sat down and thought about how long it's been that I've been developing this slow birding idea, over the course of 10 years, I really looked at how my birding has evolved and changed and tried to pull out different ways to teach people how to bird in that way. I've heard from people that have taken some of my courses that it gives them permission to bird in the way that they are the most comfortable. I think what's really fascinating is, and we were chatting about this just before you came on, we were talking about how there's this this culture of birding and you know, you, you were quite surprised that the, the culture of birding that exists in the U.S. at the moment is very similar to the, the culture of birding that is in South Africa. It's very, right, it's very male-dominated, um, very left-brained. Um, and, and as I was struggling with why I wasn't fitting in with different birding groups or, or the way people were birding, I started to ask some of those questions, like, why am I birding differently? Is it because I'm a woman? Um, is it because I just see things differently? Um, is it because I'm, I'm a different type of learner that I don't learn things in the same way? And it really led me back in time to look at who the founders of like the, the whole practice of birding were. And I feel like we've really lost touch with some of the first female naturalists as well, which is why in, in some of my work, I'm also trying to shine a light on their work as well. And many women in the early 19th century, when we had um, some of the first people writing about birds, and this is after John James Audubon, actually, you know, John James Audubon was shooting birds out of the sky in order to study them. And that was like the way that people, scientists studied birds then. There's this whole line of women, including Florence Miriam Bailey and Mabel Osgood Wright, um, and Olive Thorne Miller, who all, were all like, we don't need to study birds in that way. We can be in one place and we can learn so much more through observation rather than shooting birds and having them in, in our hands. So I think that really validated what I was experiencing 
And I'm seeing this trend. And what's great is you you were um, jazzed by what you heard Nate and I talk about. And I think the, the birding world is starting to open up to looking at other ways of appreciating and connecting with birds. When you describe slow birding on your website, you said it's the culmination of all the failures and successes that you've had as a birder. So tell us about your birding journey, how, how your own birding journey shaped this approach. Yeah, you know, I just told that delightful story of the indigo bunting and, and that was when it got good. But my entry into the birding world wasn't so gentle or soft or you know, full of warm fuzzies and excitement. I was, um, you know, I came out of college at the University of New Hampshire. I had a degree in marine biology and I immediately started going to work for different nature centers and things in the, in the Northeastern United States, especially along the coast. And I ran into a lot of birders there because I was working for different Audubon societies and they were competitive and um, brusque and they really weren't into sharing their knowledge. It was like, you know, I'm I'm not going to tell you where this really unique bird is because I don't want you to get it either. And I just thought as I kept running into these people at the nature centers, man, I don't want to hang out with you. That doesn't sound like much fun. That's not the type of way that that I want to connect with nature. And the other thing that started happening was I didn't know it, but I was seeing rarities before many other people in my community were. So I would come into work and um, someone would be like, there's a scissor tail flycatcher on Fort Hill, which is a really rare bird. This was when I was working out on Cape Cod. And it's a rare bird for that area it had blown off course and, and wound up there. And I, I said, yeah, that bird's been there for probably about two weeks now. I said, I walk my dog every morning up on the hill and, and I, I, I've seen it you know, for two weeks. And they would get so frustrated with me because I had no idea what I was seeing. And that didn't make me feel too good either. So you know, we have a word for that now, which is shaming somebody for that. Um, they were a little bit gentler than really putting me down terribly, but it just wasn't something that I then wanted to gravitate towards at all because I didn't feel like it was super welcoming. So the, you know, the failures, the failures were some of those things where it, where it feels like, oh, I like nature. I'm into nature. I should love birds, but for some reason, I'm not enough of a, I'm not enough to be able to connect or be allowed to connect. It was really weird. And so I held those things in my brain as I moved through my career. And as I became a birder and started to lead bird walks and teach classes and workshops, I always have that in my, the back of my head. What is it like to be a beginner? And how do we hold the beginners in a place where they can feel successful and provide them with the tools and the skills so that they can be successful, right? So we don't hold all the knowledge and say, you're going to have to work really, really, really hard to get here. And I'm the expert and I'm going to help you along and you're lucky to have me. My whole approach now is how can I feed you and empower you and help you build skills so that you can do this on your own so you don't need to come to somebody that you think is an expert all the time. Some people might listen to this and 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 almost think. Let me just let me just say they might think this whole slow burning approach is for old people. Yeah. Do you th- do you think this approach is something that that would um, if young people grabbed hold of of what this is about that they would actually enjoy it also? 
Yeah. So, you know, I teach this on a number of different levels and um, I've played around with it a lot. I think it's great for experts and beginners alike. When I really started to embrace letting go of like the stereotype of birding and what I was supposed to be doing as a birder, um, that's when my skills really went to this whole other level. And I've had time over the past 10 years of, of developing this idea of playing around with it with different folks. So I've had a number of um, uh, young women, actually, who I've mentored and played around with this in how I'm introducing birding to them. I, it does. It works. It just gives you a different, it's just a different lens and a different, a different foundation to build upon. I think in a way, and maybe I need to figure out how to track that, I feel in a way like the arc of learning um, is just different when when you approach it this way. And I think too, like if you think about the opposite, the complete opposite end of the spectrum, which is kids and children. You know, I have three kids. Part of my evolution in birding was realizing that once I became a mom, I felt, felt kind of bad. Like I was going to lose my place in the birding community as someone, you know, with experience, somebody to, to go to, to learn from, because I wasn't going to be able to bird as much anymore. I wasn't going to be contributing all the eBird reports and doing all the citizen science that I was before. I had to change my practice, but they also, having kids also, you look through their eyes at nature and so I find if that's like beginner's mind, right? That's it. And if we can embrace our beginner's mind, even when we think that we're experts, I think there's just this whole other layer to birding that we can add to our practice that we're missing. So when I went on your website and I, I read about the slow birding, you broke it into three things, deeper observation, deeper listening, and deeper connection. So we're going to take a look at those things. So the first thing is you speak about deeper connection. And what I really find fascinating is how the you speak about how the left and the right brain work together to help with bird identification. Now, this is something I can't wait to hear about. Tell us about the how the left and the right brain work together to aid with bird identification. Yeah. And you know, th th this was something that I like struggled with. I was like, why do I not like to think in this analytical, you know, linear way all the time when it comes to birding, right? Birding, you know, when I was learning it, it tended to be like you, you learned the, the plumages, you learned the field marks, you got your Peterson's book and they had those little arrows that showed you what part of the bird to look at. Right. And so that's all really left brain analytical it's very linear linear you're forming logical conclusions based on the information that you're collecting it's it's very word and detail driven but there was always this piece that was missing for me and i couldn't quite figure out what it was and what happened was i had a couple of different experiences um with other birders that that caused me to be like, oh, that's it. That's what it is. And one of them was listening to um, Richard Crossley, who is an author here in the States who has written a number of different field guides, including the Crossley ID guide to birds. And when it first came out, I just couldn't wrap my head around it. You know, the, the plates are this mashup of images of the habitat background with all these different like cutout pictures of birds interlaid on the top of that one species. And I just thought it was like a big mess. And then I went and listened to him talk and he talked about how when we learn birds 
in this singular image with the bird like posed just right. And it's like this, you know, beautiful illustration, whether it's Peterson or Sibley, we're missing all this context. And that's really important for our brain in order to form a visual image or a search image of that bird that we can use later on. And that's after I saw him talk, I was like, oh my gosh, that's the piece that I'm missing. And I started to think about how the other side of my brain works or hasn't been stimulated enough to work to help me with bird identification. So the right side of your brain is really more about the whole piece, like a holistic image of that bird, which also includes that context for habitat. So it's not as linear. It assesses your right brain, right side of your brain assesses 3D shapes, and it will help you form a visual impression of that bird. So it's more evaluative, right? And it's also, this is the coolest thing. It's also stored, all of this is stored in your subconscious memory. It's not as words or as details, but it's as this holistic picture, which makes it instantly more accessible. So I don't know if you've ever had an experience like this. I bet you have. If you think back, you've probably had a time where you've looked at a bird or seen a bird, maybe even for the first time, and your brain just goes ping and it tells you the name of the bird. And you're like, how did I even know what that was? Or I have this great, this great memory of this time that I was cruising down this back road in Vermont. After I dropped my kids off, I was like free. They were at daycare. I probably had the radio turned up way too loud. And I had the windows down and I'm driving back home because I've got all this time the whole day. I could do whatever I want. I was probably thinking about going birding. And all of a sudden out of the corner of my eye, I saw a bird on a wire and my brain just went, Northern Shrike, pull over, pull over. Now there's no way that I really saw that bird in its whole picture, right? In enough time to be able to identify it. But because I had all these experiences with shrikes before, that right side of my brain kicked in and was like, that's the shape, size, silhouette, behavior, all of that. You need to go turn around and look at that bird because it's not here all the time in Vermont. And wouldn't you know, that's exactly what it was. So that was my my right brain. I had done the work to build up a good enough visual impression of that bird through my experiences with that bird so that it just kicked in automatically. And so for me now, slow birding is about how do I help people build those practices and build those school skills to really engage that right side of their brain a little bit more to just give them like that added, that added oomph when it comes to identifying what they're seeing and experiencing out there. So I, I was looking at one of your pictures on your sites and you were sitting there with a journal in your hand. So do you use a nature journal when you're on the field? And if you do, what are the things that you're looking to record in your journal? Oh my gosh, that's another thing that I never really got a hold of, like got into. You know, I remembered through my training in school when I was, you know, even studying marine biology and and becoming a naturalist was, you know, you really should have a field journal and draw pictures and all of that. And I, I hated all my artwork. I hated what I was drawing. It never really looked quite right. Um, and so I was already, you know, throwing barriers up to me being able to use that um, in a way that would be, whole, you know, helpful to me. And now I've found other ways to capture what I'm noticing and what I'm wondering and thinking about in a journal. So again, I just, I kind of let go of 
of what most field journals are, are thought to be or um, nature notebooks. Um, and I kind of just went my own way with it. And so, so what I had to do is kind of let go of the way that most people were thinking about a field journal with the drawings and, and all of that and, and kind of come up with my own way. So when I sit on my sit spot, what I'm trying to do is is capture things like metadata, right? The metadata, the date, the time, what the weather is like, um, where I'm sitting, what the habitat is like. And then I'm just trying to capture things that I'm observing. And that's, it's really hard, right? Because you want to be in the moment watching the birds, but you also want to be able to take some notes. So what I learned that I really needed to do was kind of let the part of my brain that was identifying everything like nonstop, like being like, well, that's a red-eyed vireo. And then you hear gray catbird. And then there's this and that is really create a space where I could just drop all of that right away and write it down really quick. So I have a column that goes down the edge of my journal page that is just for bird codes. And so as I hear birds or see them, I just write the bird code down really quick. I don't even worry about how many I'm seeing. And then on the main part of my journal page, I write about what I'm noticing and they're little bullet points. And part of what I love about slow birding is it lets you let go of the identification, but then it encourages you to continue asking questions about what you're seeing. Like, what are you noticing about what the bird is doing? What does that make you wonder? What does it remind you of? Um, and so then I have all these little bullet points that are kind of jotting down those different things. I've actually been experimenting um, with ethograms, which are things that um, ornithologists use to kind of capture bird behavior and then study bird behavior. And so it's just a set of codes that you can make up for yourself about what a bird is doing. Is it singing? So you might use an S for that. Is it preening? You might use a P for that. So you're developing a really quick shorthand so that you can quickly jot down and get back to the observing part. So I've been having fun, especially this summer, really kind of um, playing around with how I keep notes in my journal. I think one of the the most difficult parts of birding, I think, is bird calls. And yet, I mean, they always say if you want to be a good birder, you got to be good at calls. So you, when you speak about this deeper listening part, you speak about um, how we can interpret what we use, what we what interpret what we are hearing, use the using the five voices, simple sounds. Tell us about that. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Right. Learn. Everyone's like, oh, birding by ear. I, that's all I do once, you know, the leaves come out here in the United States, like spring hits and you can't see anything anymore and, and you've got to use your ear. But it's really like this huge cacophony of sound. And so how do you even start breaking down and focusing on what's out there? And some of the things that we do in um, slow birding are to really kind of help you tease apart all of those different layers and pay attention to the different types of vocalizations that birds are making. I learned um, the five voices through the folks that teach bird language at the White Pine School in Maine. And this is based on um, John Young's work. Um, he wrote the book, What the Robin Knows. And so what he did, and I, and I loved this because it allowed me once again to let go of some of the harder stuff about using birdsong to identify a bird. 
And just being like, well, why is that bird vocalizing? And what does this sound mean compared to this sound that the bird is making? So the five voices are songs and calls. So we can have two different sets of songs. And this is mostly for like songbirds, perching birds in that passerine um, group of birds. But songs are used to attract a mate or they're used to kind of establish territory. They can either be the same song or they could be two different songs. So songs tend to be more melodious, I think is the right word, right? And they have, they are longer and they have patterns to them as well. And then calls are those like short little chip notes or sip notes that birds give for different reasons. They may be to be able to stay in touch with one another. That's one. So contact call. Another one would be when we hear fledglings on the landscape, like this morning, I heard um, a bunch of little fledglings in the woodlands where we were birding this morning, just wee, 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 just that like nonstop incessant call to let the parents know where they were and that they were hungry. And then the, the third call is alarm, right? Is the sharp kind of loud call that lets other birds know. And if you're paying attention, lets you know to pay attention because something is about to happen or something is happening. And when I finally wrapped my head around those five voices, it changed how I listened to the soundscape. And it also gave me like a set of vocalizations to learn for each bird um, that I was kind of interested in in connecting with. The other part of this is like the simple sounds thing. I mean, have you ever tried to describe a bird song to someone or a call? It's really hard because we all hear things in different ways. But I, I picked up on three different types of sounds that if you can apply those to what you're hearing, it's easier to describe it to someone or to take that those, those words to whatever field guide or app that you're using. And so the three that I use are a clear note, right? Whistled, um, a buzzy note, bzzz, like that, or a trilled note. So when we start to use these common set words to describe the types of sounds that we're hearing, it makes it a little bit easier to fine tune then how we're listening to what's on the landscape. So those are a couple of the tricks that, or strategies or practices that, that I use to kind of help people learn how to listen, right? It's not just about going out there and memorizing, it's right-brained a right-brained way of getting the whole kind of audio picture of what's happening out there. Then you go to the last part, and the last part speaks about this deeper connection, and you sit, you speak of the sit-spot practice to anchor the experiences to a particular place over time. Chat us through that. Yeah, so um, birders, right? Like when we take a bird walk, we have like a point A and a point B. We have a, a trail that we want to cover so that we get all these birds in or the maximum amount of birds. Um, and one of the trends here in environmental education, and it's mainly used with kids, which is really interesting, right? We have like the kids representing beginner's mind, which should be a clue to us that it's probably a good practice for us as well, is to sit in one place and allow the birds to come back in around us. Have you ever had this happen where you get to a spot and you like pull into the parking lot and all the birds are in the parking lot? Yeah, I have had that happen. Eh? Yeah. And then, right, maybe some one person stays behind 
and you go out on the trail and you get X amount of birds, right? And you come back and the person in the parking lot is like, wow, I saw this and I saw that and I saw this. And their list is like completely different than what you saw. And that's because they stayed in one place and all those birds relaxed and came back in around them again. So really a, a sit spot is really an amazing way to not only allow the birds to come back into you, but if you do it over and over again in the same spot, you get to know those birds, you get to know that habitat, you get to know the, the ebb and flow through the seasons, through the weather, all of that. And it's just this really different connection than if you go to a different trail every weekend or a different site every weekend to bird. So I really encourage people to pick a sit spot to bird from that's really close to home, someplace where you can like, like mine is literally, I step outside my back door and sit down on the back steps and then and I sit with my coffee and my notebook and I just allow everything to come back in around me. I find also when you sit in a specific place and you just spend more time, it's it's almost as if you become more aware of what's around you um, than when, you walk it, when, you, when you're walking around. Yeah, you tend to kick up birds. You know, this was the other thing that I learned from um, John Young's book, uh, What the Robin Knows, is that we create bird plows, right? So you, you walk you're intent on seeing birds. You're kind of in this, that's like a hunter mode of mind and you're carrying your body in a certain way. And the birds just kind of blow up around you. They go, they go up and out and they come back in around you and resettle back in those spots, which is why whenever I go on a birding walk that I'm not leading, I'm always in the back of the group because a lot of times birds come back around and settle back in. And that's when you get a good chance to, to really see them. Something I've been quite fascinated fascinated about as I've been going through your stuff, and and I, I don't know if this is something you've 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 actually looked at, but most birders use sight and hearing predominantly. But do you feel that there's there are ways to engage even more of the senses in our birding? Yeah, you know that's a hard one, right? Because if we think about our five senses, right, we're not going to go out tasting birds. <laughs> smell, smell probably comes into play with like shore birds, those big colonies. But I, I think there's this other sense of connection, especially when you start a sit spot practice of this connection to the land and the, and the landscape and the soundscape. Uh, yeah, and the seasons. So I think when we're always on the move and we're always kind of listening and, and looking at birds in these in these two ways that are mainly for identification. I'm going to look at you because I want to identify you or I'm going to listen to you because I want to identify you. Like what else are we missing? And if we stay in that one spot with that bird for a while, what other things will we learn? I don't know if that's a sense. I don't know how to explain that other than that's like that deep. I mean, we're animals after all. That's that deep animal in a awareness piece that we can reconnect with it's still there it's just been yeah we've been so pulled away from it and i think it's that idea of also being more mindful on the field you know i think there's so many things that 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 distract us and you know we can be on the field birding and our mind's not even fully there and i think it's that that practice of fully immersing yourself in the experience yeah being in that moment it's changing your intention right? It's like, if, if I, and I did this one day, like I went birding by myself and I was like, I'm, you know, I'm going to go walk this trail and I want to see these birds that I know are likely to be there. And when I got there, once again, all the birds were in the parking lot and I 
And I thought, well, I'm just going to stay here and I'm not going to let that drive to either complete the checklist or complete the whole walk push me, right? That's not going to be my intention. My intention is going to be to be in the moment with the birds that are right in front of me. So the question I'm going to ask now might be a little bit of a controversial question, but a lot of birders use apps such as eBird in South Africa, BirdLasser, while they're out birding. Do you feel that technology being used in the field could possibly disconnect us from what we see? Oh my gosh, I'm so glad you asked this, right? Because there's like the the purest birders who don't want to use technology and then there's like the the people that are you know totally fine with apps and then there's the beginning birders who are just looking for any little tool or thing to help their entryway into this connection with nature happen a little bit easier so it doesn't seem so daunting. I'm kind of the person that's in the middle. I love a good app. I love um, using eBird because I know it's good for science, but there's also days where I'm like, I'm not eBirding this today. Um, I went horseback riding with a friend to see if we could bird and horseback at the same time because we both read this great book by Florence Miriam Bailey called A Birding on a Bronco. And she's like, are we going to e-bird today? And I was like, no, I just want to focus on being with the horse and being with the birds. And I don't want to have to think about doing anything else. And I think that's really okay. Right now here in the States, things are blowing up along that controversial line because Merlin, this is an app through the Cornell Lab of Ornithology, just released this new function of the app that is sound identification. So it's like, the thing that everybody's been waiting for, right? Can I just hold my phone up and it'll tell me what it is? And there are people that are, you know, frustrated and upset that, you know, people are going to misidentify birds and report them wrong. And I was like, well, that's our job in the community to help those people learn how to use eBird properly and learn how to use the new function on Merlin as a tool and not like the final say in what that bird is. I think these are great things that can really make birding more accessible to more people, kind of break down some of those barriers. But I also think it's really good to put the phone away and the technology away. I even think it's good to put the field guide away, right? Stay with the bird, forget the book, forget the technology, and just be with the bird. Make those mental notes or make physical notes in your notebook. Um, just, Just be in the moment. So let's make this practical. Okay, if you were going to go out and do a birding excursion on a general day, how would this work practically for you? How would the slow birding approach look on a practical level? Yeah, so this is such a great question. I have been playing around with this because I lead bird walks for people too. I had a client this morning that I took to one of our wildlife refuges. And I I think it's very different when I go out by myself than when I'm taking clients out. And it's important to understand the difference between you know my intention when I go out birding and and their intention. So a couple of things that I do on a personal level is when I pack my field bag now, I have a small stool that folds up really nicely and fits in my backpack along with my other gear. And I have like recording gear. I'm not a photographer, but my binoculars and my recording gear and my notebook. And so I take that with me so that if I get to that spot where there's a lot of activity, 
and things that I want to spend more time with, I can literally sit down and be in that space and be comfortable and um, spend the time that I want to be able to spend. Um, So the other piece of this is really kind of changing how, how I look at the birds. So one of the rules that I have for myself is I stay with the bird as long as the bird stays with me. So I don't leave and I don't stop wondering and noticing and making observations until that bird kind of takes off and leaves. And then I do that, that thing that I was just saying, I allow myself to ask other questions. So I let that part of my mind, that beginner's mind to really engage and come into play where I'm asking things other than what is the bird doing? Why is the bird singing? Why is it sitting like that? Why is its posture like that? So I allow those questions to flow. And that's kind of just kind of opening up your mind and allowing that to happen. With the bird walks that I'm leading now with clients, it's a little bit more subtle and I have to feel out how people are unless I'm designating it as a slow birding walk. So on the slow birding walks, they do encourage people to bring a small portable chair or stool that they can bring with them and a notebook, things like that. But with other clients that are looking to have something that's more along the lines of the traditional guided tour, I'm still kind of putting little pieces and things in there that get them wondering and noticing in different ways so that they can see that they can shift the intention of how they bird and not miss out on anything and probably add a lot more to the experience. Bridget, it's been really awesome to chat to you today. And um, we were just chatting off air before, and we're going to try and put together something to try and do some do a slow birding course in South Africa and make it accessible for people here. But for people that are listening, because we've got listeners from all around the world who want to connect with you and find out more about the work that you do, how can they connect with you? Yeah, sure. I think you can search with, um, just put Bird Diva into a search engine. I don't think there's too many of me out there. Um, my website is birddiva.com. I'm on Facebook as Bird Diva, Instagram as Bird Diva, and Twitter as Bird Diva as well. But www.birddiva.com is probably the easiest way to find me. And we'll be sure to pop all those links into the comment section of this podcast. Thanks so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Eh? Adam, thank you so much for having me. It's been a joy. We are proud to be working in association with Wild Books to help get all the best birding resources into your hands at a great price. If you would like to support the Birding Life Project and the resources that we are putting out, please click on the link in either the comment section of this podcast or in our social media posts. Your support helps us to improve and hopefully make a bigger impact. Be sure to head over to our website www.thebirdinglife.com and check out all the exciting resources that we have on our website, including our exciting forum section to connect you with the world of birding, birders, and exciting birds out there. Do not forget to follow The Birding Life on Instagram and Facebook. We really appreciate everyone that takes the time to interact with these accounts. Be sure to check out Birdlasser and download the app on either iOS or Android and keep a life list while playing your part in social conservation. As well as Swarovski Optic, one of the world's leading producers of binoculars, monoculars and spotting scopes. So until next time, be blessed and happy birding.